0: Did you notice, did you notice that Pastor Tyson was like especially excited this morning? Did you notice that? No? He's, he's especially excited this morning because I did something that just for his Pentecostal kind of charismatic roots was just the ultimate. I went up to him just before the first service, right? And I was like, I'm gonna change everything. I'm gonna do, I'm changing my sermon. I, just, I need to change my sermon. And he was like, do it. Yes, go. That's just that's charismatic like gold right there. It's just, i got something else i got to say. I'm not quite doing that. I, I realized that I had so much, and we all like to have dinner at home. And so I was just like, let's, let's shrink this down. And so we have two Sundays left in the Gospel of John, and then we're done. And the biggest task that our, our staff have this week is figuring out how we celebrate that next Sunday. Okay? So think with us. How do we celebrate the conclusion of four years in the Gospel of John together? That's next week. What we're going to do is, rather than me trying to do a couple of things in this sermon, we're going to do one thing here this morning, one thing next week, and make it really clear and streamlined. Next week, we're going to talk from verses 15 in chapter 21 through the end. We're going to follow what Jesus is doing with Peter, he is in the midst of restoring Peter, who had denied Jesus three times. We, we want to follow that story all the way through. We're going to do that next week. Jesus' interaction with Peter, and believe me, it means a lot for us. This week, however, we want to deal with the task that, that Jesus was commissioning Peter to. And as you'll see in the text, it's sheep feeding. And so we want to talk all about that this morning. What we're going to talk about this morning is also going to maybe, maybe answer a little bit about why we do what we do at Central, why our focus is what our focus is, and this, this text this morning is really going to help us in that. So before I say more about it, let's just read it, and then we'll unpack it together. So John chapter 21, starting in verse 15. You're going to see a little bit later on, we're going to start with point number two. That's because I scrapped point number one, it's going next week. Sorry for the confusion. Here we go. This morning we want to talk about what faithful shepherding looks like, and I think it's timely because we're talking about elder candidates and what it means to be an elder. It's also what it means to be a pastor. These are interchangeable words in the New Testament, pastor, elder, overseer. And so we see that Jesus is giving Peter a charge here, and so we want to discover what that looks like from this text. And it's important that you see it, even if you're like, well, I don't want to be a pastor. I don't want to be an elder. It's really helpful for you to hear what faithful shepherding looks like so you can hold us to it. It's so important that churches know what shepherds are supposed to do and that you hold our feet to the fire. That's, you get to do that. I'm giving you permission for all of the staff but myself, obviously of course, for myself. Okay, so faithful shepherding, just to keep it quick, let's only do seven, okay? Seven ways in which it looks from this text for faithful shepherding. First, the motivation of shepherds must be love for Jesus. Must be love for Jesus. Do you see the, 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 the triple thing going on here in the text? He's asking the question, do you love me Peter is saying, yes, and so in light of that response from Peter, from Peter, Jesus says, okay, then feed my sheep. You love me? Yeah. Okay, then feed my sheep. The motivation of shepherds must be love for Jesus. Simply put, it has to start with love for Jesus. There will be all sorts of positive motivations for being a shepherd in the church, wanting to help people, wanting to use the gifts God has given, helping others encounter Jesus for themselves. Those are all great things, but primarily the first motivation ought to be love for Jesus. I love Jesus, right? It starts there. There are negative motivations for wanting to be a shepherd, like wanting public accolades and things like that. Believe me, they are few. Don't don't do it for the public accolades, right? Like, it's, like there's all kinds of like twisted motivations in our hearts though for wanting to be a shepherd of a church in some way. Like, oh, if I'm an elder, then I'm a leader, then I can be in charge and then I can make decisions. The primary motivation for a shepherd is love for Jesus. Can't miss it. I'm in my fourth year now of being the lead pastor here at Central, and every year my pattern has been the same, and it will be the same this summer, is every August, I don't preach in the month of August. It's a time of refreshment, and the first part of August is some family time and some vacation, and I've been uh, so wonderfully, even a little bit surprised of what happens every August, which is partway through the month, I go, I really miss Central. I miss you guys. And I'm like, I love that. I miss, I love you. I I love not only getting to do what I do, but that I get to be a part of this church and know you because I care for you. The primary motivation must be a loving relationship with Jesus. Second, the sheep belong to Jesus. Jesus is saying to Peter, feed my sheep, Peter. Jesus is saying, you, Peter, feed my, Jesus's, sheep they're not peter's sheep they're his sheep no church is a particular pastor's church it's jesus church and who are the sheep by the way who are the sheep the sheep are those who believe in jesus thirdly the food for sheep is god's word if a shepherd is to feed the sheep that's their primary role first and foremost what is the food? Well, the food is God's word. I, don't hear me insulting you because I, I am one of the sheep myself. But sheep are dumb. Have you ever hung around sheep? Like sheep are nature's victims. <laughs> That's what sheep are. They're nature's victims. So this is this is a this is a this is a lambs or a, a sheep a sheep's a sheep's. This is their defense. So some predator comes along, the sheep is thinking, here's what I'm going to do, I'm just going to freeze. And they're literally like being eaten, and they're like, well, like that's just all they do, that's all they've got. That's what sheep do. Sheep also, they can, they can literally die of dehydration when water is just really close. Because they haven't been led right to the water, right? Like right to the food. They'll, 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 they'll be grazing in a, in a beautiful place where there is lots of grass and they can feed on it for a long time. And they'll just start to wander off to barren lands. That's what sheep do. they like, what are you doing? All, you're already where you need to be. So the primary role of the shepherd, yes, is to protect them in addition. But the primary role is like lead them to the food. Lead them to it. And what is the food? It's the Word of God. When Jesus was facing temptation at the beginning, the onset of his ministry, he's about to call his disciples and start his public ministry, but before he does, we read in early in the Gospels that Jesus was fasted and prayed in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And then, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 2, it's perhaps the most obvious verse in the Bible, after 40 days and 40 nights, it tells us that Jesus was hungry. After fasting for 40 days, and 40, yes, absolutely, of course he is. And that's when Satan, the tempter, comes along trying to tempt Jesus to sin. And the first temptation, because Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days, is why don't you just turn those rocks into bread and have a nice meal? If you're the Son of God, you can do that, right? And Jesus, in this temptation and with all the temptations, he responds by quoting Scripture. And to this temptation, he responds by quoting the words of Deuteronomy. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, So what's our spiritual nourishment? The Word of God. That's what our spiritual food is. That's how we're nourished. So how do we need to be fed? We need to be fed with the Word, a strict diet of Scripture. There's an interesting story in Mark chapter 6. Jesus is ministering to people, and He comes across this crowd. In Mark six thirty-four, it tells us that when Jesus went ashore, He saw a great crowd and had compassion on them. Why? Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus is seeing this crowd of people who need a shepherd. So what does he do? He's compassionate. He sees people in need. What does he do? How does he help them? It says, and he began to teach them many things. See what happens? There's a crowd of people. They're like sheep without a shepherd. He has compassion on them, so he teaches them. Jesus, we learned at the very beginning of John's Gospel, is the Word in the flesh, God's Word in the flesh. Jesus is the Son of God, so when He came, everything He spoke, it's it's Scripture, it's the Word of God. And and Jesus, when he came in his ministry, in his life, he fulfilled the whole Old Testament. So here we have Jesus who fulfilled everything in the Old Testament and is the Word of God. After his resurrection, Jesus passed on his teaching to the apostles. Everything after the Gospels is, is writing about the ministry of the apostles. But what is their ministry? Well, the apostles made disciples of Jesus through preaching the word. That was what they did. They preached the gospel. They shared the scriptures. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Here's how. This is what the gospel is. This is how his word is speaking into your lives. That was their ministry. And from preaching that way, people came to faith. And then they gathered those people who came to faith as disciples into churches. And in those churches, they appointed elders for each church and entrusted them with the ministry of the word. Meaning, the food for the sheep is the word of God, and the ministry of the church, first and foremost, is the ministry of the word. Fourth, shepherds must know God's word. Been on a plane lately, and you hear the spiel at the beginning. If the cabin pressure, you know, decreases, oxygen masks will fall. Before applying an oxygen mask to another, apply it to yourself first. The rationale being uh, oxygen-depraved parents are of little good to oxygen-depraved children. Start with yourself, then you can help others. In the same way, likewise, malnourished shepherds won't produce well-fed sheep. It just doesn't make sense. It doesn't work that way. Malnourished shepherds will not produce well fed sheep. I'm going to pick on Jessica for a moment this morning. <laughs> she's excited. Jessica our, our women's ministry pastor here, and, and her primary role, she's teaching through Philippians right now with our women on Wednesday mornings with the women's group. She's teaching through uh, the book of Philippians, and her primary role as our women's ministry pastor is to teach the word. Now, there's many other things that happen in women's ministry. There's one-on-one conversations that we'll, she'll have. There are, there's leadership development and vision casting and all those sorts of things. But all of that flows from Scripture, right? When, when, when she's sitting with someone, yes, she's compassionate and she's hearing and she's empathizing. But what does she have to say? Like, the truth of God. Like, even in those settings, it's, it's, it, the, we're so convinced that it's a firm conviction that the best thing we have to offer is God's Word to His people because it's spiritual nourishment. And shepherds are only as helpful to the sheep as they are willing to feed themselves as well. A uh, University of Toronto professor by the name of Jordan Peterson is uh, quite, becoming quite famous these days. Um, he kind of came on uh, the public... Um, radar when he uh, would not alter gender pronouns. He was not willing to use alternative gender pronouns, and that created quite a firestorm, and so a lot of sound bites about him came out. And since then, he's had a lot of interviews, and people have found him to be quite a fascinating individual. He's um, an interesting, interesting man. He just wrote a book recently called Twelve Rules for Life, and he has quite a following of of people, especially young people, and especially, especially young men. And and really, what he is advocating for, I think, from, from what I've been able to observe, is he's saying, in the midst of a lot of young people feeling hopeless, like, oh, the economy is going to tank. There aren't many jobs. I don't know what like, my life is about. And they're just feeling hopeless. And he comes along and says, affect the, the change that you can. Try and be a positive contribution to the people around you. Just small, just a little dose of matter to other people. Help others. Like, live out your potential. He's saying things like that. And he has, by the thousands of, of, of people coming up to him on the streets, just constantly. And they're saying, you changed my life. And he's like, I did? You changed my life because you told me to just invest in little ways that I could make a difference, and it's lifted my depression, and it's done this, and it's done that. And, and what he's saying is quite small. I'll give you an example. In his, his recent book, it's a bestseller. It's at the top of the Amazon list, New York Times bestseller. All of that's called 12 Rules for Life. Here's what rule number six is in his book that's revolutionizing um, our culture in a lot of ways for, for many young people especially This is all that rule six is. Set your house in perfect order before you criticize the world. I've actually heard him give a a public lecture where he he even kind of made it smaller than that. He was talking to a bunch of students and he said, learn to clean your own room before you try and solve the world's problems. He's looking in at all these millennials saying, oh, what they need to do is they just need to switch this and they just change that. And he's talking about public figures and they just need to do this. He's like... Just start, stop, start by cleaning your room. Like, clean your room first. Like, get your house in order before you believe that you can change the world. Precisely is the true, the precise same thing is true of shepherds. Like, if God isn't making, isn't speaking into our own lives, speaking through his word, teaching us, what do we have to contribute to the body in feeding others? You can't be a teacher of the Word without also being a student of the Word. Pastors can't lead others up the mountain to meet with God if they haven't been there themselves. Fifth, the shepherd's first priority is to feed the sheep. Shepherds must know God's Word, but also their first priority is to feed the sheep. Jeremy Wren in his book Church Elders wrote, if elders shepherd Jesus' sheep, then their most basic task is to feed the souls of church members from The scriptures. Without food, sheep weaken and die, and without regular nourishment through biblical teaching, Christians starve spiritually. The shepherd's first priority is to feed the sheep. What do you look for in a church? What do you look for in a pastor? That's a weird question. I'm uncomfortable. (laughs) What are the reasons that... I'm convinced there are... I mean, there's superfluous reasons and then there's um, reasons of substance, right? And and I hear so often um, what pastors are all about and it's often about superfluous things. There's a lot of pastors' books being written these days on how to grow your church and all of the tips are superfluous things. There's a lot of people that I I talk with, and and the things that they say about why they love their church are superfluous things, or that they entertain them, they don't feel uncomfortable. That's a good thing. That the the preacher is um, an excellent communicator, other churches, obviously, other churches, that he's funny. I love that my pastor's funny. The reason I go to my church, literally, I've heard that. I go to my church because he's so funny. I love how obnoxiously big their screen is. <laughs> other churches. Other churches. Other churches. Love that. That's uh, Coffee is the best. The facility is amazing. I love the build. It's so beautiful, right? I, I want to liken the analogy to... Um, Good tools that build a good house, shoddy tools that build a good house, good tools that build a shoddy house, and shoddy tools that build a shoddy house. Now, in a perfect world, churches would all be made up of good tools that build a good, quality, firm foundation, structured house, safe house. That's ideal, right? Where, yes, the... the the preacher is an excellent communicator, and the coffee is delicious, and the seats are comfortable. And that that's great. Those are all good tools. And there's nothing wrong with those at all. But, but what's really important is that there's a good foundation that's safe. Right? And, and that, that's being built. Like, what's, what's, what, what's a, what are really, really good tools? It's Like, DeWalt? Are those good tools? I don't even know. Like, I have like three tools. One of them is uh, a hammer, 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 hammer. <laughs> hammer. One of them is a hammer. That, but here's what I know. Like, there's a lot of circumstances where the tools look great, but the structure is flimsy and, and dangerous. And, and my, my, the, the answer I, I hope we can lead to, in, in my question of, of what do you look for in a church, I, I hope that the first priority is that it feeds you, that, 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 that you can answer the question in the affirmative, am I going to starve here? And you can either say yes or no to that. Am I going to be well-fed here? Meaning, will I be fr- f- served food for sheep, which is what? The Word of God. Now I'm a bit of a cheeky person, I'm a bit of a sarcastic person, it gets me into trouble a lot, I'm Canadian, which obviously means I'm passive-aggressive, and the Lord is really slowly sanctifying me, so I remember saying something quite cheeky to a friend of mine years ago when we were sitting in a church, listening to the sermon, and it was about 15-20 minutes in, and I just nudged my friend and I said, well, I guess I won't need this, right, put it down. But it was true. Like the sermon was being preached, and I, we didn't need to look in our Bibles. There's there's a tension here. Like we're just we're we're trying to be faithful in this. I, there's not. I don't want you to hear a, a pride in this because I, I just think we're like trying to be faithful in this. Like. I want you to hear that. I just uh, my, I get really sad, not prideful, sad when I hear in the foyer, we've been looking for a church that preaches the Word for months, and it's so refreshing to come and hear the Word preached. It's like, like, that's not, I don't love, I hate to hear that. What I want is flourishing churches everywhere that open the Bible and feed the sheep from the Word of God. I want that. I want that for all churches. I don't want to have a corner on the market with that at all. We strive to be quality tools. I'm a bit of a crooked tool. Yes, I called myself a tool. We, 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 we try to be quality tools, but what's most important is that it's building a quality house. In other words, the sheep get fed because they're nourished from the Word of God. It's paramount. I want to give you an example of that. Charles Spurgeon is referred to as the Prince of Preachers, very likely the best pre- preacher since Jesus, 19th century London, England, famous preacher. But he came to Christ at 15 years old, and he wrote down and he preached many times about his conversion experience, and I think it's helpful for us here. He wrote at 15 years, well, reflecting at, uh, when he was converted at 15, he wrote, I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair now "'Had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning "'when I was going to a place of worship. "'When I could go no further, I turned down a court "'and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. "'In that chapel, there might be a dozen or 15 people. "'The minister did not come that morning. "'Snowed up, I suppose.' So Charles Spurgeon, as a 15-year-old, is going to his church, but there's a snowstorm, and he can't get to his church, so he turns down the street and goes to this little church where there's like a dozen people there, and the preacher of that church doesn't arrive because of the snowstorm. A poor man, a shoemaker, a tailor, or something of that sort, went up into the pulpit to preach. He was obliged to stick to the text. I love this shoemaker or tailor already. He wasn't even expecting to preach that morning, but he got up there and he was obliged to speak what? To preach the text for the simple reason that he had nothing else to say. I can relate to that. The text was, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, Isaiah 45, 22. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but it did not matter there was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in the text. He began thus, "'My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look.'" Now, that does not make a, take a deal of effort. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just, look. "'Well, a man need not go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look.'" A man need not be worth a thousand a year to look, like making a hundred K. Anyone can look. A child can look. But this is what the text says. Then it says, look unto me. Eh, he said in a broad Essex. I'm not going to try the accent. I'm no Chris Ross. (laughs) Many of ye are looking to yourselves. No use looking there. You'll never find comfort in yourselves. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Now, this poor shoemaker is preaching the gospel. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend. I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, look to me, look to me. When he had got about that length and managed to spin out ten minutes, he was at the length of his tether. That's all he had. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say, with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger. He then said, Young man, you look very miserable. (laughs) Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made on my personal appearance from the pulpit before. However, it was a good blow struck. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you do not obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then he shouted as only a primitive Methodist or a young Mennonite can, young man, look to Jesus Christ. Christ. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. In that moment, I saw the sun. And I could have risen that moment and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. God uses crooked tools. But you have to Share the message of Jesus. See, maybe you've heard it before. You win them to what you win them with. I'm quite a critic of the last two decades of evangelicalism. We only need to look around to see what we've won them to because of what we've won them with. And a shallow gospel leads to a shallow Christian. A shallow faith, no counterculture at all. When the true gospel is Jesus gave his whole life, he had to die because you're so bad. But he loves you so much that he did it. He died for you. That's serious. That's heavy. That's a lot. And then he says, if you would believe it, praise God, you will live. Now take up your cross, it's heavy and carry it till I take it off your back when you arrive in eternity. That's not light. But we win them to what we win them with. And so if we would stick to the Word of God, what you have is people who come under the Word of God and get trained in the Word of God, and therefore can be one to rich faith. And that's the hope, that's the desire. Sixth sheep meet together to feed on God's Word. Paul said to Timothy, a young pastor in the city of Ephesus, in 1 Timothy 4, he told him, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Timothy, gather your church, and when you do, pray the Word, sing the Word, speak the Word, preach the Word minister the Word, encourage each other with the Word, gather around it and do that. He said in his second letter to Timothy in chapter 3, all Scripture is breathed out by God, and then a few verses later, so preach the Word. What he's saying is the entire Bible that you hold is God's very Word to us, so preach that book, the whole thing. It's from this conviction that we teach what we call the what's called the whole counsel of God the the whole Bible so that we can better understand who God is because we're looking at all of scripture to tell us what he has done and we look through all of scripture to see it who we are and we look at all the characters and all the examples in scripture to better understand who we are and then ultimately what God has done for us and through that, what He wants from us. In a few weeks, we're going to start a new series on the Ten Commandments. What does it look like to be Christians, followers of Jesus, who believe the gospel and that Jesus has fulfilled the law? What do we do then with the Ten Commandments? How do we live? What does that look like? Do we obey it? Is it fulfilled? We don't need to worry about how do we live there? And so we're going to go from the gospel of John all the way back to Exodus and live there for a few weeks because We believe that God speaks through his whole word. And when we gather together, he teaches us corporately. We need it. Finally, sheep should be growing. Sheep should grow. The little lambs should grow to full maturity. The writer of Hebrews states this as a warning in Hebrews 5.12. He says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Though you've been sitting under teaching for a long time, you still don't understand the basic doctrines of the faith, he's saying. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. What he's saying is, look, you're too old for a bottle if you've been around for a few years. It's time for solid food. No more bobos. Now, listen, listen. All of us need to start with milk. If you're exploring faith in Jesus, if you're new to the faith, I want you to hear this, like, you can ask basic questions. That's great. We're excited about that. We need to learn the elementary things, so don't feel bad about that. Live there and learn it and be taught that way, but we should, it should produce maturity. That's precisely what Paul says in Colossians 1.28. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature. In Christ, That's the goal, to reach maturity, to go from milk to solid food, to go from infancy to maturity. Sheep should be growing. Now, that is a word about shepherding in the church, but I want to broaden this because there is certainly broad application here. So let's talk briefly as we close about fruitful discipleship. I want to answer two questions here. How are we qualified and what is the task? So let's go back to the the text. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. And feed my sheep. See, the apostles were charged with fishing for souls and gathering those souls into churches and assigning elders to feed the sheep. And yet, at the same time, we are the priesthood of all believers. Everyone a minister So to follow Jesus is first and foremost to love him, to love him for what he has done for you. So what's the qualification to to be someone who feeds others, teaches others, helps others grow up in the faith towards maturity? What is the qualification? Is it a master's in divinity? Is it the ability to play an acoustic guitar while wearing skinny jeans? Some would say yes. Yes. It's more than that, Tyson. It's much more than that. (laughs) Only the really articulate ones can feed others. Only the ones who are really gifted. The best of the best. It's only for those perfect ones that don't exist, right? No. Look at the text. Peter's a failure. We're going to talk more about that next week. Peter's a failure, but Jesus asks him, do you love me? And he says, you know I love you. And so he says, okay, then feed my sheep. That means when I ask you the question, do you love Jesus? And you go, yeah, I love Jesus. I can with confidence say, yes, now feed sheep, feed others. Every one of us has an influence on others. Let's use it to feed with the word, to feed others. Do you love Jesus? If so, you're qualified, and that's the task at hand, qualified for the task of feeding others. In other words, to make disciples. To be a disciple is to be a student, to be a learner. So to be a disciple of Jesus is to learn from Jesus, following in the way of Jesus but it's also to help others discover the way of Jesus as well. It's both being a disciple and making disciples. And I think that there's a disconnect for a lot of followers of Jesus, right? It stops with, I'm just going to attend, I'm going to listen to this great podcast, I'm going to go to this really good Bible study, I read her blog, I read his blog, I love that. And it's just feeding us, feeding us, feeding us, and there's no output. And so... a true disciple of Jesus, though, follows it through and both is fed so that they can feed others as well. There is both a fed and feeding of others that takes place in the Christian life. Titus chapter 2 makes this clear where Paul says to Titus, But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older man, here's what they are to do to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in steadfastness, so that they can be an example and teach others. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. I'm not sure why Paul thinks he needs to go there, but he's like, what the older women need to do is go easy on the wine, okay? But he goes on, they are to teach what is good... (laughs) Amen. And so train the young women to love their husbands and and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. The older women are not only to go easy on the wine, they're actually to invest in in women younger in the faith and train them, teach them. Likewise, here we go, urge the younger men. This is a lifetime of ministry right here. Urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And oh, I am witnessing so many in our church just grabbing hold of that. I no longer simply want to be fed. I always need to be fed, but I don't want to only be fed. I also want to feed others. I want to tell you the story uh, as we close of two life groups that are so encouraging to me in our church. One of them is a, a Chilliwack campus life group, and it's made up primarily of... Of those in their fifties, sixties, and seventies, and uh, they decided, let's not only be fed, let's feed. And so they—it was stretching for them, but they led the Alpha course this fall, so so that they could take the, the the elementary things of the faith and questions about faith in Jesus and Christianity, and share that with those who were seeking. And it was so, so help One or two people came to Christ through that, and people grew in that, and. And, and learn from that, and that was amazing. And now they're looking for the next thing. How can we take what, what's been built into us and build it into others? There's a life group in in Agassiz, also of, of individuals in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. I'm so encouraged by them that they're still, that they're just longing to grow and be used by God and look for opportunities. And they were looking around and like, we've been doing Bible studies for like four decades and just asking ourselves, okay, looking in, looking in, looking in. They're like, we need to do, we need to step it up a notch. Let's make our our, our Bible study all about the basics of the faith and invite people in our lives that don't know Jesus or are new in the faith and let's just talk about those things. Let's invest in others who want to explore faith and so they did that and there was a young woman in that group who gave her life to Jesus. I am so inspired by people who go, I'm I'm not satisfied to merely be fed. I also want to be used by Jesus to feed others. What are the qualifications? Do you love them? Feed his sheep. So here's my, here's my encouragement. Let's be lovers of Jesus, and let's be disciple-makers. Um, we're going to take communion now, and here's how this works. Well, we're talking about, do you love Jesus? Well, if you love Jesus, I invite you to come and take communion this morning. You don't need to be a perfect person, but the invitation is to come and receive if you are a repentant person. So I want you to take a few moments and let the Holy Spirit kind of convict your heart a little bit. Lord, is there anything in my heart that isn't, uh, no sin that I I have not repented of, Lord? And and just bring that to Him and repent of that sin. Is there a brother or sister in Christ that I have not, uh, that, that I have wronged, that I have not made this right, and this is standing in the way of communion If that's the case, just hold off. No one will think anything of it. Make that right. Come back again next month to take communion. Communion is not for the perfect. It's for the repentant who say, Jesus, I need you and I love you. So I'm going to pray. Our communion servers are going to come up and we'll respond with singing and communion together. Jesus, oh, we're so, so thankful that you take uh, crooked tools and make beautiful things. Peter is an example of that, Lord He failed you miserably, and you not only restored him, but you called him to greater ministry. Jesus, I know in this room that you want to restore people, restore lives, and lead them on to greater ministry. Lord, we get so caught, we get so stuck, we think we're inadequate, we think we don't have the credentials, we think all kinds of things, but all you require is that we love you first. And you will help us with the rest. Lord, find us faithful in that, I pray. And as we take communion, Lord, we thank you that you taught your disciples this. On the night you were betrayed, you took the bread and broke it and said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And you took the wine and you poured it and said, this is my blood shed for you. Keep doing this. Keep partaking in this. Keep reminding yourselves of what is the essence of the faith which is Jesus, and all that you've done for us. We say thank you, and we respond to that. In Jesus' name, amen.